I am here. This is uh, Jeff Morton, Colorado Sports Guys. And we're with here is Adam J. Crippley. Uh, he wrote the what I think is a fantastic book on uh, basketball in the 70s, NBA basketball, and eventually with the NBA merger. It's called Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. Uh, welcome, uh, Adam. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, it just you and I have been uh, discussing for a while um, the possibilities of uh, doing something like this, and I had to read the book for myself. And right, actually, right before I read your book, uh, actually right after I read your book, um, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dan Issel, who features a little bit in your book, and uh, as Nuggets fans would know, uh, he's Nuggets legend, Hall of Famer. And I did reference uh, your book actually a couple times while I was interviewing him, interviewing him, and he was very interested to get a copy. So uh, it, I think that based on that, uh, Nuggets fans, and you're listening to this, would love to enjoy this kind of his, uh, a brief history lesson without giving away the book about basketball in the 70s. Now, uh, to start off, Adam, uh, what kind of driv- drove you to uh, write a book about basketball uh, in that particular decade? Um, so I'm a, I'm a history professor and in, uh, was teaching a class that looked at American history through the lens of sports history. And one of the books in, in preparing for that class a couple of years ago was a fantastic book about baseball in the 1970s called Big Hair, uh, Big Hair and Plastic Grass. And it does a great job of looking at the 1970s uh, Major League Baseball uh, in terms of not only like the, the seasons, uh, but also kind of larger things going on within the sport and in America. And so after reading that, you know, I really enjoyed it, but my favorite sport's basketball. And so I looked to see if there had been anything that had been written. And uh, once I found that there hadn't been, I took on the task of kind of writing it myself. And what began as a uh, kind of a side project and something that I, you know, worked on kind of on nights and weekends pretty soon became a, a really important part of my scholarship as a professor. So uh, the, the nexus was kind of that way. It was I, I didn't sit down intending to write the book. But as I got into it, I got really interested in the topic, and so it kind of came from that. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating journey, I should say, uh, for anyone who is into um, just uh, not only basketball history, but the evolution of what David Stern uh, referred to as the, the Dark Ages, um, or the dark darkest hour of uh, NBA basketball, which I think he was referring to the late 70s when he uh, yeah. was referring to that. But uh, it tends to get branded with the entire decade. And that's really a shame because you start the book off with the 69, 70, uh, season. And that is the, of course, ended with the uh, New York Knicks winning the, the championship and maybe one of the, the, the greatest moments, uh, in New York his, Nick history, maybe the greatest of uh, Willis Reed coming back injured. Uh, was that something that, you know, that year, uh, encapsulating something that made maybe the end of the uh, particular era of basketball, um, that 69-70 season, and coming into a kind of a, a different kind of brand new era of basketball in the 70s? Because it seems to me like it's a kind of a, 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 a departure point of where the basketball was in the 60s with the uh, Celtics dominating and to what it became in the 70s with uh, a whole bunch of different teams winning uh, basketball titles. Yeah, I think it um, certainly the Willis Reed moment in 1970 is a is a turning point. Um, I think even more important than that might be the retirement of Bill Russell that summer. So in the summer of '69, Bill Russell uh, calls it quits, hangs up his spikes, and um, then you know the Celtic dynasty is, is is if not dead, at least changed dramatically. 
And so, uh, actually, the the book uh, has really, I think, really interesting bookends. So on one hand, on one hand, Russell retires in 1969, and Willis Reed, of course, has the the Willis Reed game in 1970. And then in 1979, you have the arrival of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, which I think institutes a, a different era. So, you know, I I was probably going to write a history of the NBA from 1969-70 to 1979-80, you know, um, but it ended up working out that there were nice bookends on either side. So. Yeah, the the Willis Reed moment though is is pretty fantastic, and I think if you ask, you know, old time Knicks fans, they'll still point to that as the highlight of the uh, of the franchise even now, almost fifty years later. Well, people forget uh, uh, that how good that Knicks team was. Uh, that was that was a very very good Knicks team, and and uh, they, they were no joke as far as in, in, at least in my view, the in the annals of NBA history, um, that particular Knicks team. Uh, I think the 6971, uh, maybe more than the one that won, uh, about four, three, four years later. Um, that one was the one that I looked to as they like one of the, we talk about individual basketball teams. That was one of the, the greater teams. And they beat, um, a, a early version of a super team. Uh, at, and, and you would think that, that would be more um, kind of lauded in the annals outside of New York. But when I look at it, people always tend to skip the 70s when they talk about the, the NBA. And to me, 1970 championship game is a uh, championship games, the series, the finals, was one of the kind of the shining moments of, of uh, in at least what I regard as NBA history, early in NBA history. Sure, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's an exciting series. And you have, you're right, on one hand, you have the, even at the time, what was considered kind of the evil super team, uh, especially because Wilt Chamberlain was on it. And mm-hmm. it was hard to hate Jerry West and Elgin Baylor at that point, the other, the other two of the big three, if you will, because mm-hmm. they had never won, they had never won a championship. Um, they were pretty widely considered good guys. I mean, they were pretty well liked throughout the league, but Wilt Chamberlain was a, was a, was a villain in 1969. And now he's kind of seen as a mercenary. He's on his third or fourth team by that point. And, um, yeah, just to, to you know, to watch Goliath get beaten by David is is basically what happened there. Is the the big bad Lakers lost to the uh, to the very team based um, Knicks and and you're right that, that that team's kind of forgotten the annals. Um, I would argue that the their championship team in 1973 might have been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willis Reed wasn't as good. He was on you know he was kind of on his last leg. But they had they had added Earl to Pearl Monroe. Um, they had added Jerry Lucas. You know, they, they they lost some of their depth, and like I said, Willis Reed wasn't that good. But, yeah, we kind of forget how good those early 70s Knicks teams are, and they do get overwhelmed by the by the Celtics of the 60s and then, of course, the Celtics and Lakers of the uh, of the 80s. Well, it's interesting to watch, too, coming from that point, uh, that, that little starting point is Red Holtzman's influence on uh, the, coach, uh, the coach of the Knicks at that time, his influence on Phil Jackson and his approach to basketball which really influenced late 80s, 90s basketball with the uh, the Chicago Bulls. So there's kind of a bleeping off point from that brand of basketball that was done right at that time, that kind of uh, relentlessly team-based basketball that you really didn't see in, in an era of heavy isolation and big men, that you see that kind of thing that basically reemerged when Phil Jackson brought the same, along with Tex Winter, brought the same thing to the Chicago Bulls in the late 80s and uh, 90s. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, kind of the way some of the things that Phil Jackson did were certainly influenced by Red Holzman and, uh, and having played for him in the 70s. And, and he's acknowledged that in several books and, and that sort of thing. And I think you're right that um, he, uh, he being Phil Jackson, 
definitely was looking to move away from the center dominant. You throw the ball into the center and he makes a move, uh, which had really predominated, you know, it dominated basketball for a long time since the Red Holdsman era. And, uh, yeah, his, uh, uh, definitely the, the triangle is, there are definitely elements of the triangle in those early Knicks teams. The emphasis on passing, on ball movement, on cutting. Uh, it's not that isolation heavy. And, uh, so it's, there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely a, a continuity there. What did you discover as you were progressing forward within like this? And I was always, uh, thought, uh, talked to a couple other artists and they say that, uh, especially in nonfiction, they've, they've discovered that the, that there is a, a bit of a, a revelatory moment as they're in like midway through writing a book where they, they suddenly understand the evolution of something, especially of how uh, point A got to point B. Did you find yourself, uh, while you were immersed in this book and you were going through all these, and it's pretty exhaustive that what you have done, uh, specifically when you go year by year by year describing, uh, what, how it happened each year. Uh, in the NBA and eventually when the ABA merged, did you find yourself, uh, like having a, a, a kind of an epiphany of what the evolution was of basketball in the seventies as you were writing this book? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, I did actually, I started and my, my goal was to write, uh, kind of an entertaining year by year. Here's what's going on in the NBA. Um, here's what's going on culturally. And I really found, and I was probably closer to two-thirds of the way or three-quarters of the way through the book, when I kind of came to the understanding that this is really the foundation of the modern game. And I had grown up always, or at least as a basketball fan, with the belief that the, um, you know, the modern NBA really emerges when Magic Johnson and Larry Bird arrive in 1980. Yeah. What I kind of found here is that instead of 1980, it's really the merger and the arrival of free agency three or four years before they are in the league that we start to see that turnaround. Um, and I think it takes a while to, to actually be realized and recognized. Uh, but you have the arrival in about 1977 of uh, players like, of course, through the ABA merger, Dr. J and David Thompson you ha- and George Gervin. You've got the drafting of guys like Bernard King and Adrian Dantley um, and, and just have uh, a different group of of players that are coming in, the, the dominant center, you know, really the last dominant center, and this is off the top of my head, that, that comes into the NBA in the 70s is Bill Walton in 74. Uh, yeah. And then you don't have another one until 83 and Ralph Sampson. And, I, you know, I'm overlooking some, some important players, but I think that that dominant center kind of loses importance. And you start to have wings like, as I said, Irving and Thompson, uh, Bird when he comes in, and Dantley and King and all these fantastic athletic wing players and the game undergoes a transformation. And I think that, you know, scholars of, of basketball history or just people interested in the sport have really kind of overemphasized how the game changed when Johnson and Bird came in. And I really think that that had, it was already, it was already taking place uh, before they arrived. So that was kind of the, uh, a long answer to a short question, but that was my epiphany that the modernization of the game uh, that I found, I think really is pushed back a few years from where it had, uh, it had traditionally been seen. Well, I, I will actually. You bring up a good point, and I'll progress to that in a, in a, in a, in a moment. I, I kind of want to circle back to um, the early '70s, and specifically those almost dynastic, but never quite getting there, Milwaukee Bucks, who 
all we're, we're just always again, outside of one year, always the bridesmaid and never the bride. Is that one of those yeah. NBA teams that you look at and you go, if a couple of if they have a couple other breaks, they are considered one of the greatest teams in NBA history. If they were able to put everything together, but it, cause it seemed like they were. Maybe it's because uh, Oscar Robertson was on the downside of his career. Uh, maybe it's because Kareem was never really comfortable in, uh, or Lou Alcindor was never really comfortable in Milwaukee. But there was always this almost right there because uh, every time I look back through that early part of the 70s, the Milwaukee Bucks keep coming up as one of those teams that's like winning 60 games, winning 57 games, and never just quite getting there. No, that's a great, a great point. And in fact, if you look, one thing I got into during the research of this book were some advanced statistics. And if you look at advanced statistics, the 1971 Milwaukee Bucks are a top three team of all time uh, by any indication. They're, they're, um, you know, how much better they were there. Oh, I can't remember what it stands for now. Their SRS scores and their box score plus minus, all these kind of advanced statistics say that they were an amazing team. And I think that for them, they, uh, they were kind of, you know, you mentioned two of the big issues that they had. One is that Oscar Robertson really started to tail off um, about the 72-73 season. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor at the time, oh, he becomes Kareem after they win the title. But he becomes less interested in being in Milwaukee. Uh, it's not where, not where he wants to be uh, from a personal level or from a personal standpoint. But I also think that they were always about one player away. They needed, they had some really good role players, but after mm-hmm. they win the title, um, Greg Smith gets traded away. He was a, a kind of a gritty power forward. They, they almost got uh, Julius Irving um, around the same time. So, you know, talk about a great what if, if they had had Julius Irving and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Oscar Robertson, uh, which was definitely in play at the time. Um, right. how that would have certainly changed the dynamic. And you're right, though. I mean, I think they were always, they were on the cusp, and they uh, they happened to, on different occasions, run into a buzzsaw like the 72 Lakers that, you know, set the consecutive record streak. And and mm-hmm. so there were always these kind of teams that jumped in ahead of them. The, they should have probably won the title in 74 against the Celtics and, and didn't. So instead of being a three-time champion, they only won one. And I think that history looks at them much differently because of that. That is a, that's an excellent, excellent, excellent part. Uh, it, it's a description of those Bucks teams being that the, and then the NBA, I think it's become very clear since it's a five-man unit that's uh, starting games and there's only five people on the floor at any one time for a team, that three people, that, that combination of three, you see throughout history. And the Bucks just never had that additional guy. That they could that that they could get onto uh, that they could like rely on in a quote unquote big three setting. Now the Bulls of the '90s, you could argue, weren't exactly a three, but they had Horace Grant, who was one of I think the best power forwards of his of his time. Sure. Uh, but at you know you look at the the Bucks and it's like they just didn't have that that extra guy, and that's an excellent excellent point about just needing that that extra player with the Bucks, And, you know, you look at another great team of that era, and you spoke about the uh, 72 Lakers and their consecutive game winning streak. You look at that, those early, uh, not early, yeah, yeah, the early 70s Knicks teams, and that's another example of you had two guys who were on the tail ends of their career. Well, Elgin Baylor ends up leaving 
Uh, I think that sure. was it after the 70 season. Is that when he, when he left? Uh, midway through the 71, 72 season. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, he, he retires suddenly. And then the Lakers actually became a better team after ba- Baylor left. But is it, uh, you look at those early, those, uh, early 70s Lakers teams with West and, uh, Chamberlain and they had like that, like the Bucks, they had that dynastic feel to them. But there again, they, they, they couldn't do it. They couldn't, they couldn't get over the mountain. And I think the early 70s are filled with teams like that, even including those Knicks teams, that just couldn't put it together to uh, kind of would be, you know, put piece together what the Boston Celtics had before them or what the Lakers and the Celtics had in the 80s. You're right. And that was one thing that fascinated me about the decade was that there wasn't one dynastic team. And, and I've been asked by some other people who the best team of the 1970s was. And, and I've said it was the Washington Bullets and you know, we are the Baltimore slash Washington Bullets. And we've not even mentioned the Bullets because they were, they were so consistently good. They only won one title. But again, you talk about a team that if things had fallen a little differently, might have won two or three. So, uh, there was just such depth in the seventies in terms of, of the number of teams that were good and the number of teams that were that close to becoming that, that Celtics-esque dynasty uh, of the 70s, but none, none ever did. Uh, you go, you actually go into great extent um, in, in, in a lot of parts of the book about uh, Pistol Pete, uh, uh, Pete Maravich. And history looks at him in a very interesting way as someone who was a fantastic if not unbelievable college player, but could never put together um, what you would call a, a, a fantastic season in the pros and was always going to be remembered as the guy that Press Maravich drove relentlessly to become a scoring machine at LSU. Do you think when you, when you look at that, when you look at uh, Pete Maravich and you see the circumstances that kept him from becoming the player that everyone thought he was going to be. Do you think under, if he was drafted into a different circumstance, he may have uh, maybe evolved into a great NBA player as well? Well, I think that there's certainly that. Um, when he was drafted by the Atlanta Hawks, he was, he was immediately thrust into the role of a white savior, uh, but it was on a really good team. So Atlanta had a good team. And so on one hand, you know, he had the benefit of coming onto a team where he didn't have to be the saver. He didn't have to, you know, if, if, if things had worked out differently, he wouldn't have even had to start. Um, he was on a very good team. Uh, but what happens is, of course, he disrupted team chemistry, and then he got the, the, uh, the tag, unfair or not, of being a, a cancer and actually making teams worse that he joined. And then the second team that he, he goes to, uh, the New Orleans Jazz, is in, you know, not his home state, but what was considered his home state essentially because of his background at LSU mm-hmm. and he just the pressure that he had to deal with at both of his stops, I think really affected him. And obviously his career would have gone far differently. If for example, um, in, uh, you know, the Hawks were a really good team. If he had ended up at another really good team like the Boston Celtics at an early age or um, like the Washington bullets or some other team that had, had an established veteran presence, but that he wouldn't have rocked the boat quite so much. So uh, yeah, he came in with, in really a bad situation for him. And then his, his other stop when he was in his prime was an equally bad situation in a, in a very different way for him. So I think he was put into two positions uh, that he had a really hard time adjusting to. And that certainly colored his entire career as a result. Do you think, uh, and you pointed this out uh, in early part of your answer, do you think uh, 
that a little bit of the the whole Great White Hope thing kind of weighed on him too. The 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 it's it seems like some of the players uh, on his first stop in Atlanta were uh, not as receptive to him because of the hype that was put onto him because of his race. Yeah, sure. And I mean, if you look at um, the the chapter that I, I talk about Maravich in, he come you know he's a he's a white skinned rookie coming on to a team that's pr- predominantly African-American veterans. And the marketing department, for example, for the Hawks, um, puts out the media guide and it talks about the new Hawks and they change their yeah. uniform color and style and, and he's predominantly featured. And the, the veterans on the Hawks are rightfully saying, you know, what was wrong with the old Hawks? They were, they were conference, I believe conference semifinalists. They were one of the best teams in the NBA, you know, top four or six team in the NBA the season before they added Maravich. And so there's a lot of grumblings, like what was wrong? You know, I think certainly part of it is that he's white-skinned. Uh, but I think as far as the players were concerned, I don't think that the Hawks players were racist. I think that they were more concerned that this is a rookie coming in, getting all the money, all the attention, all the hype, and they're underpaid. Uh, in fact, probably their best player, or if not their best, their second best at the time, a guy named Joe Caldwell, went into the Hawks management and demanded that he be paid uh, I believe it's $1 more than Pete Maravich was making as a rookie because he felt he was worth it and, and owed it. He ends up sitting out, uh, ended up in the ABA, and, the, and you know one of the veteran leaders of the team suddenly gone. So um, I don't think that, that the teammates saw Pete as a you know, white-skinned savior. Fans certainly did. The ownership group certainly did. And Maravich had that pressure um, put on him as a result. So I think that that definitely played a huge, uh, huge role in, in – his at least psychological struggles to, to transition to the NBA. I think that it's leaping off from that point. There, there is some, oh, it's a big overriding arch to the entire decade of the seventies in multiple ways. And I think you captured it um, very well in this book is the racial dynamic and what was going on in America as well as going on within the league about the different layers of, of, of culture differences, of, of the, and America still struggling with race and how it affected more than any other league, probably the NBA directly, and how that played into people's perceptions of the league. Specifically, if we go to close, close to the end of the decade, what happened with Kermit Washington and Rudy Tomjanovich and the, and the famous punch that nearly killed Rudy Tomjanovich. And probably, as everyone can look at it back now, was an, played into a very unfair narrative about uh, African-American players in the NBA. Sure, and I think that basketball does get a lot of attention racially in the 1970s. For a number of reasons. I think one is that that game, more than any other, has athletes that their bodies are on display. So you can tell, certainly, if a player is African-American, if they're playing football or baseball. But you know, they're, wearing, they're wearing baseball uniforms or football jerseys and pants and helmets. And uh, basketball players are wearing a tank top and really short shorts in the 70s. So mm-hmm. you, it's easier to just kind of glance at the court and see uh, a growing number of African-American players. And so I think that there's a fear on the part of white owners. They've many certainly expressed it that fans might be disinterested because they're black players. Um, and as you mentioned, this is a time of incredible cultural upheaval. You know, we talk about the, the late 1960s. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. Bobby Kennedy's assassinated. Uh, it's a summer of turmoil. You know, the United States is in Vietnam. 
And so, of course, there's going to be some of that issue of civil rights that spills onto the basketball court. And and for people that were anti-civil rights or that were um, maybe less accepting of African-Americans, they see a game that they may have loved, and now African-Americans are, are beginning to dominate that sport. Uh, and so there's certainly a lot of racial issues going on within the NBA and within the United States uh, throughout the 70s. And as you mentioned, by the end of the decade, we see um, increased drug use. Player salaries are skyrocketing. Many of the African-American players who are making the league come from underprivileged backgrounds. And so, um, yeah, we have just all this, all this kind of racial dynamics that are, that are happening throughout the decade. And maybe, as you mentioned, best encapsulated by the punch that Kermit Washington nearly killed Rudy Tomjanovich with uh, in 78. That is, uh, and we can, we can revisit that in a second. I kind of left ahead, but I, I sure. think that I think I, when I, uh, Look at that decade. I think it, it, it's hard to it's hard to get away from what's just one thing because the meanwhile simultaneously to the NBA you have the ABA, which is high flying three point uh, line, which the NBA didn't have. The red, white, and blue basketball, the uh, just the outlandishness of that league, the renegade league. And they tried, uh, I believe it's in 1970 or maybe 71, tried to merge with the NBA, and it was put on hold because of the Oscar Robertson, uh, Robertson suit against the uh, NBA for, uh, uh, for basically uh, uh, antitrust suit for the, uh, to get free agency and to destroy uh, what, what was known as in baseball as the reserve clause. And what you when you look at that and you see how in the merger of 1976 affected the league, how did the existence, just the very existence of the ABA as a parallel league, affect what was going on in the NBA while they were both playing at the same time? Well, I think the most striking change was the financial aspect. Anytime there's a competition within major sports, we see salaries skyrocket. So the ABA was offering salaries that were, in some cases, uh, significantly more than the NBA. And so we see the salary structure in the NBA radically change. Now, some players came out of college and joined the NBA, even though they were offered better money in the ABA because they wanted the, you know, the challenge of the NBA or they wanted that, um, uh, the traditional strength of that league. But that was the biggest way that it changed it was actually off the court. On the court, I don't think that there was a, a ton of change that took place in the NBA because of the ABA. And what you see kind of emerge is, as you mentioned, two separate styles of play. The ABA has the three-point shot, and there's greater emphasis on artistry, on the slam dunk. Uh, and in the NBA, it's still very much a big man's game. You throw the ball into the center. Um, it's center dominant. And those um, those fancy moves and, and fancy passes and, and dunks, are are less a part of the NBA game. And so what you see stylistically are two different leagues, but where the, the effect of the ABA is really felt is financially and economically. As players start to get, uh, you know, be able to make much more money as, an, as a professional basketball player than they had early in the decade. Uh, late in the 60s, you still have men, and even into the 70s, star players that are working off-season jobs because they are not making enough in the NBA. By the end of the decade, the star players aren't holding, you know, Larry Bird's not selling used cars in his summers because he's making plenty of money as an NBA player. Uh, whereas a generation earlier, 
even the all-stars are, are selling insurance in the summer, doing other things to make ends meet. So financially is the biggest influence of the ABA, but in terms of on-court product, it's really not until after the merger that we see that uh, come into play. Well, it's, it's interesting how that uh, is for Nuggets fans who are listening to this, how the Nuggets influence that in the financial side twice with David Thompson. Uh, first uh, off was uh, somehow luring him from, in 1975, from the NBA. I believe it was the Hawks who drafted him as well. Right. And luring him to the ABA uh, largely because they offered more money. And doing that got probably one of the most coveted college athletes um, of the 70s, just coming off a championship at North Carolina State, <clears throat> and becoming that guy that became a, a huge marquee star for the ABA that uh, along with uh, Artis Gilmore, uh, Dr. J., and the players that were there, Marvin Barnes, the players that were in the league already, you see the Nuggets emerging that same year when they acquired Dan Issel as one of those teams that was acquiring those stars. The Nuggets did that twice in the same decade when they offered, uh, they gave uh, David Thompson, which I believe was the highest contract ever in professional sports at that time for an individual player. I believe it was 1978. So the financial aspect of it definitely changed. And uh, do you think after the merger, that financial aspect, there wasn't the culture within the NBA necessarily to contain that kind of uh, advance in money. And there wasn't that, uh, what it became later in the 90s, the structure that was able to sustain that sort of thing. Well, you definitely see a change when free agency hits. When the merger hits, it allows for free agency to take place in the NBA yeah. as well. And so the reason the Nuggets had to um, had to pay Thompson the second time in 78 is that they knew if he went out onto the open market as a free agent, that one of the big big market teams like the Knicks or the Lakers especially were going to go in and make him a huge offer. And, you know, it's, it's, I guess if you want to draw parallels to today, it's the same thing that small market teams suffer with today is they know in the open market that they're not going to be able to sign a megastar, even if they have the cap space and money to do so. And at the time, the NBA's teams aren't, aren't working under the constraints of a salary cap. And so the Nuggets offer, and they, and they do sign Thompson to the largest contract in pro sports history. It's $800,000 a year at a time when, you know, even the elite players were making maybe a half a million dollars a season. So uh, Thompson blows everybody away with this contract. And it's not, I think it's a, a couple seasons later, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar breaks it. But at the time, it was just jaw-dropping that a player, even of Thompson's caliber, would make that money. So, yeah, the salary structure um, certainly underwent a transformation, both from the beginning of the ABA and then once the merger takes place because of free agency, which is, again, a, a game-changer in pro basketball. Um, since this is a this is a CSU podcast, Colorado Sports Cares, I, I have to talk about the Nuggets a little. Um, when Absolutely. They, when they came in, uh, Larry Brown was initially a guard on the Nuggets in the early 70s, and then he eventually became their coach in 1974. And he brought with him, or actually Carl Shearer came over from the Carolina Cougars and brought with him uh, Larry Brown. And in turn, they drafted Bobby Jones, who was later famously known as the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> and you, you see this evolution of a, a particular team randomly appearing at the time with the Denver Rockets, which became the Denver Nuggets, I believe, that year. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you see a, a Nuggets team that's emerging as one of those teams that's building the the, the, the three. You know, and, and they get the, the that year they win sixty five games and get upset by the uh, Indiana Pacers, I believe, uh, and I so. George. George McGinnis uh, hit a game-winning shot to knock them out. And I spoke to Dan Issel about this, and I asked him about coming to the Nuggets in 1975. And it's, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's one of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my life about how Dan Issel was sold to the Baltimore Claws. Right. And the Baltimore Claws... Uh, basically decided not to pay John Y. Brown, the owner of the Carolina, uh, the, excuse me, of the uh, Kentucky uh, Colonels. Colonels, yeah. Just decided not to pay him. And John Y. Brown burst into their executive room and said, announced that he suddenly was going to, uh, to sell them to the Denver Nuggets. Uh, meanwhile, Dan Issel was sitting in a hotel room with basically no team. And like three weeks later, the Baltimore Claws folded. Um, it was one of those odds that odd stories that could only happen in the ABA. But you, <laughs> exactly. But you come back and you see that that Kissel comes in. You got they drafted David Thompson. They already had Bobby Jones, and you have a team that is one of the most exciting teams to emerge from the ABA into the NBA. Can you talk a little about like your perception as someone who's not like obviously as biased as I am? Uh, now looking at that, just looking at that Nuggets team from a uh, from a past perspective and an outside perspective, about your perception of the what they were trying to do at that time, and uh, their kind of uh, you know what that them as a team moving forward into the NBA. So I might not be as biased as you are, but um, I, I I'm a big fan of a game called Stratomatic Basketball, and I, I had played a lot of games from the the first merger season, 76, 77. And I always pick the nuggets because they're my favorite. They're my favorite post-merger team. Um, because you're right. They have this big three that are, that are not only exciting players, uh, you know, the secretary of defense and, and then they've got, you know, horse and, uh, and, and the Skywalker. Um, but, but they actually, they fit really well as a team. Issel was able to hit jump shots. Uh, Thompson was of course, second to none at attacking the basket. Bobby Jones was so, um, uh, so it's so unique for his time being able to really guard three or four positions as well as being a slasher and a scorer that way. Uh, they had some great complementary parts. And especially if you look at their, their season, their first season after the merger, they really take everybody by storm. I think there was a perception in the NBA that these, these four teams that came over the, the Nets, Pacers, Spurs, and Nuggets were all going to kind of be fodder for this powerful NBA and they end up, at least two of the teams, the, the Spurs and Nuggets, end up being two of the best teams in the NBA that season. Yeah. And the Nets arguably would have been, except that they had financial problems and had to sell Julius Irving to the 76ers. Um, and my beloved Pacers were terrible at the time, so that's my team. So I, uh, you know, I, I, they, were, they were awful, which is why the Nuggets can be my favorite post-merger team. But no, that, that team was super exciting. They were, ex- uh, they were an up-and-down team. They played a trapping defense. Uh, and really had, like you said, a, a big three that were all pretty young at the time. Um, I think Issel was still in his probably late 20s, and he was the oldest of the three. Uh, and so you had just all the potential in the world for that being an all-time great team uh, when they came into the NBA. Well, it was funny. Uh, I spoke to Dan extensively about this, and he 
he said it was one of those almost teams. It's like sure. uh, after the merger, they ran into the, the Portland Trailblazers buzzsaw in the, in the playoffs um, mm-hmm. that the, the year after the merger. But the 78 season, he is convinced that that, that team should have won the title that season. And oh, and I, I agree completely. Yep. Yeah. I 100% agree. And if you look at their first, um, the first half of the season, they were playing like 650, winning six, 65% of their games, give or take. And we're, yeah, they, he's right. He's right. And uh, the, the guard that defected on them that year, uh, what was his name? Taylor. Brian uh, Taylor. Brian yep. Taylor. Uh, I asked him about Brian Taylor. I said, what the hell happened with Brian Taylor? And uh, all he would say is, he was a weird guy. <laughs> the only thing that he would say. And I was like, okay, I, I understand now. But uh, he defected on the midway through the season, and they managed to get to the Western Conference Finals, and he, he said, you know, they lost game two of that series. Mm-hmm. And he said it's the same thing that crippled them when they lost to the, the Nets in uh, 1976. He said that that after they lost the first game of that series, after Dr. J hit a, a game-winning shot with no time left, he said, that killed them. He said, otherwise, he said, if they don't lose that game, he said, they win. And unfortunately, it was one of those situations where they dropped the game and they, they could never recover. And he said, after that, you know, Larry Brown uh, basically started wanting to trade everyone. And right. it just, you know, doing his Larry Brown thing, because Larry can't stay in one place for too long. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he, that's what happens. And I and I wrote an article on this where I said, that is probably, you could argue, the best team in Nuggets history from 74 to 78. And it's it's interesting how that, if you put that Nuggets team into the modern NBA, they probably are a 55-win team. Well, I think what Taylor gave them, and this is why his loss was so big, is he gave them a an experienced veteran uh, who could who could hit a jump shot and who could run a team. And if you look at the teams that they had before that, they they had good guard play. They 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 never really had that um, that exceptionally strong point guard. Yeah. And that when when Taylor left they had to kind of scramble and everybody had to play a little bit out of position. Thompson had to handle the ball a little bit more than he probably should have. Um, so it affected everybody certainly. And, and Taylor was, you know, if you had to just, uh, to, to give the, that Nuggets team a perfect guard, it probably would have been Brian Taylor. He's, he's often forgot about, but he was an all-star guard who had a nice jump shot, um, could run a team, could play defense. He, he could steal the ball and create fast breaks. And so, yeah, him him uh, deciding halfway through the season that he was a free agent because he was upset with Nuggets management uh, really kind of you know cut that team. Um, and then what ends up happening, of course, like you said, is they end up uh, trading for George McGinnis and Charlie Scott. They they got a couple superstar head cases and um, yeah, and ended up <laughs> ended up kind of tumbling down a little bit. But yeah, that I I would agree that that, that stretch between '74 and '78 were all-time great Nuggets teams. Well, and uh, we, the Nuggets got George McGinnis, and uh, by that time, George McGinnis was still a good player, but he wasn't what he was. Sure. And I think that, I think that as uh, you know, you probably know being a Pacers fan, that uh, McGinnis, McGinnis was one of those great all-time ABA players. And I, I think that it's kind of like, he's one of those players that you wish had that time outside to, to have that, what, 
that exemplary career in the in the AB excuse me in the NBA because you also have uh, well on the Nuggets side Byron Byron Beck who played his mm-hmm. entire career almost his entire career in the ABA and other players great players like uh, Louis Dampier um, from the uh, Kentucky Colonels who were just great ABA players who just never got that got that NBA thing and just kind of are left to the annals of history because the NBA refuses to accept the records of the ABA teams. Right. I mean, McGinnis, as, as you said, is a Pacers fan, especially he's one of the, one of the greatest players that nobody, nobody remembers about. And, and unfortunately, uh, the reason that people might remember him in, because the last several years when Bill Simmons wrote his book on basketball is he just, he excoriates McGinnis. I mean, he just tears McGinnis up. Um, and McGinnis was a, was a superstar. And mm-hmm. by the time, you know, by the time, as I said, he was kind of a head case by the time he came to the Nuggets, but he had gotten his, his head messed with so much in Philly, uh, that, that he was, he really had a rough end of his career. And, uh, but was, there were, there were discussions, uh, in 1975 or 76. And looking back, it's, it's hilarious in hindsight, but there were legitimate discussions about who was the better basketball player, McGinnis, Irving, or David Thompson. Uh, those three were were very much considered uh, on a similar plane, and obviously, looking back in history now, Dr. J is is on a different level. But in their mm-hmm. primes, those three were were definitely considered to be uh, at about the same level. So the fact that you know you can understand why, especially a team that had gotten beaten by McGinnis and the Pacers, might hope to recapture some of that magic by having them on their team. Uh, but of course, it didn't work out quite as well as they'd hoped. Now, we're going to the late 70s uh, and NBA. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this will probably wrap us up here. I really appreciate the, the time you've given me. Um, Absolutely. We get to the end, end of the uh, 70s, and that is famously the start of the tape delay finals era, and it's the reputation of the league was certainly at beginning to be at its lowest point from, like, basically the late seventies to about 1983, 82, 83, mm-hmm. right around there, sure. where the drugs and the, uh, basically as of, if you could argue with the, the, uh, the punch, uh, was contributed to contributed greatly to the decline of the NBA at the time. When you look at that period and you look at that period of the NBA, do you look at it? Like, do you think this is a, a woeful period of down NBA basketball, or do you think there's some underrated basketball here that is not really, it's kind of unfairly maligned because of the era they played in? Oh, I definitely think there's, it's, it's underrated. Uh, in fact, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've amassed a, a pretty large collection of, of DVDs and videos from this era. And mm-hmm. I actually, I really love the stuff from post merger until 81 or so when, um, you don't have that one dominant team and you've got a lot of teams that are really trying to figure out how to work post-merger. I really like the, the post-merger uh, Spurs and Nuggets, by the way, which really helps. But yeah. uh, I, I, find it, I find it fascinating. There's just there's so many different ways that these teams play the game. Uh, and I definitely see that, you know, to me, I, I, I enjoy that, 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 that part of basketball history. And I, I certainly understand why some people watching those games see players that don't look like they care as much, or in hindsight, they might look back and say, well, this player was clearly coked out while they were playing and drugged up. And, uh, but, but watching those, I, I don't see that. I see players that are still playing hard, players that are giving a lot of effort, that are, 
uh, that are really excited to be in the NBA that, you know, so I, I guess I don't see it as, as much of a negative as, as other people do. And in fact, like I said, I've become really drawn to that period, the, the late seventies and early eighties, because it is that league in transition that until I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head about 1983, when the Philadelphia 76ers, uh, win the title and Moses Malone famously says they're going to win in faux, faux, faux. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that kind of is a transition to a new, you know, because then after that, it's all Celtics and Lakers and, uh, the bad boy Pistons. And then you have the Jordan era bulls short on the heels of that. But I, I, I agree that that period between 77 and about 83 is, is seen as a downtime. But, but I, like I said, I love, I love watching basketball from that era. It's amazing how, how basketball evolves. And one of the best things I could take a, and I'm going to, by the way, I'll recommend everyone go out and buy this book. Uh, it is available on Amazon. Um, it's Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J, Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. And that's, the title is 100% accurate. It really is the evolution of basketball from the early era where the Boston Celtics were winning everything under the sun to what became the Bird and Magic era, which really began in the 84 finals. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as the peak, but the the way the way the NBA evolved in that period is a dramatic, and I think it still felt to this day um, the just the the way the basketball is played even now is greatly affected by everything that happened uh, from 1969 to 1979. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Adam. I appreciate you giving me the time. Uh, this was great. Like I said, everyone go out and buy this. It's available on Amazon, Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J. Pistol Pete and the Birth of the Modern NBA. It's by Adam J. Cripley. Uh, the last name is C-R-I-B-L-E-Z. And uh, thank you very much for joining me, Adam, and I appreciate the time you give me. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.